our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. You probably know that a copperhead is a venomous snake, Latin name Agkistridon contortrix, a member of the pit viper family found in woodlands throughout North America. And you may know that Copperhead is a minor villain in the DC Comics universe, occasionally facing off against Batman or the Teen Titans, or joining up with the Suicide Squad. In this episode, though, we're talking about a different kind of Copperhead. A northerner during the Civil War opposed generally to the Lincoln administration and opposed specifically to its conduct of the war against the South. Historians disagree over just how much influence the Copperheads actually had, but it's pretty clear that the Lincoln administration viewed them as a genuine threat to the war effort. And Lincoln's response to the Copperheads, which included crackdowns on civil liberties, has become fruit for some of the most enduring criticisms of Honest Abe's presidential legacy. Now, if you compare someone to a type of snake, you're ordinarily not speaking about that person favorably. And indeed, the name Copperhead was not intended as a flattering or complimentary characterization. There isn't 100% agreement over the name's origin, but the Copperhead designation was probably first applied to anti-war northerners by Horace Greeley's New York Tribune, possibly inspired by a New York Times article from April 1861 that claimed that southerners had taken to placing copperhead snakes in mailbags bound for D.C. As first used by the Tribune, copperhead was intended as an insult, and critics of the northern anti-war faction continued to use it that way. Most opponents of the war called themselves Peace Democrats, which sounds a heck of a lot nicer than Copperhead. Conversely, the Democrats who favored continuing the war effort, albeit often with vigorous criticisms of how the war was being conducted, they came to be known as War Democrats. And we should emphasize that the Democrat Party was decidedly split during the war, and for that matter, immediately preceding the war. Remember, the Democrats were unable to agree on a nominee for the 1860 election, so there were essentially two Dem candidates, Illinois Senator Stephen Douglas for the Northern Democrats and Vice President and future Rebel General John Breckinridge of Kentucky for the Southern Democrats. Now, once the war got started, most of the Southern Democrats became Confederates. Of the remaining Democrats in the Union, the majority were in the War Democrat camp generally behind the war effort but critical of the Lincoln administration's conduct of the war, and especially of the president's perceived usurpation of extra-constitutional powers, which we'll discuss later. The Peace Democrats were unabashedly against the war. They didn't necessarily want to see an independent Southern Confederacy, if that outcome could be avoided through negotiations, but their highest priority was first avoiding and then ending a bloody, destructive conflict between the states. 
As the war progressed, the name Copperhead became entrenched in common usage, and the Peace Democrats made a moderately successful effort to take possession of the term by reimagining it as a reference to the Lady Liberty profile featured on one-cent copper coins. They trimmed the coins and made pins out of the copper bust of Lady Liberty. So if we're called copperheads, it's because we wear copper Lady Liberty pins, not because we're analogous to venomous ambush predators. Got it? Now, peace Democrats were driven by two core issues. They were anti-war, and they opposed the Lincoln administration's civil liberty infringements, which were a consequence of wartime politics. In her 2000 book about the Copperhead movement, historian Jennifer Weber wrote of the Peace Democrats, quote, They were sincere in their belief that the Lincoln administration and the Republican Congress were overstepping their constitutional bounds. They did not want the Confederacy to win or the Union to split. They just wanted the nation to return to the status quo antebellum, end quote. Now, from President Lincoln's perspective, the Northern Peace Movement was an obstacle to his paramount goal of keeping the United States united, i.e. preserving the Union. The Copperheads weren't against a continued Union per se, they were just against the war. Lincoln, though, believed the war was essential to keep the nation together, a necessary evil to keep the South from leaving. As old Abe Lincoln saw things, by impeding the war effort, the Copperheads, who Lincoln described as fire in the rear, were helping the Confederates split the nation asunder. And if the ultimate goal was to preserve the Union, Northerners who got in the way might have to deal with a few restrictions on their constitutional liberties. Hello and welcome to Portraits of Blue and Gray. Our most recent episode looked at Civil War espionage and intelligence, focusing on the Union side of things. We said during that episode that the next release would explore the same topic from the Confederate side. Now that episode is still coming, but I decided to call an audible and squeeze in an episode on the Copperheads because the hawk versus dove dichotomy has been an issue in national politics recently so a historical perspective seemed appropriate. Now, when I started working on this episode, I initially intended it as a a 20 or 30 minute survey of the Copperhead movement, basically an introduction to the Northern Peace Democrats with a summary of the movement's effects and the Lincoln administration's controversial response. Predictably, the episode turned into much more of a deep dive, and we'll be looking more closely at a few individual Copperheads, several of whom are very interesting characters. Incidentally, having worked on this podcast for a few years now, I have learned that in the world of audio and video media, good editors are worth their weight in gold. Deciding what to omit is a much more difficult task than selecting material to include. Alright, I suppose that is a sufficient welcome. Oh, just one other thing. There's a new email address for the podcast, civilwarpodcast at protonmail.com. The old Gmail address is still there, but I'm moving away from over-relying on Google software for everything. All right, thanks for listening, and I hope you all enjoy our look at the Copperhead Movement. There's a description of the U.S. Civil War, 
which was coined during the war itself as a rich man's war but a poor man's fight. It's a straightforward idea. The people whose disputes started the war were wealthy politicians, businessmen, and plantation owners. The people whose blood resulted were working-class laborers and small farmers. Now, you can nitpick this depiction. The South, in particular, lost a huge portion of its native aristocratic class to the war. But it's undeniable that most working-class men who died in the war had nothing to do with starting it. Now, against this backdrop, it should come as no surprise that a portion of the poor and working-class people intended for the meat grinder might take issue with this arrangement. Although there were prominent copperheads in politics and the press, the anti-war movement in the North was mostly decentralized and it held the most sway among the working classes. Today we might call it a grassroots or populist movement. The Midwest was the copperhead stronghold. Farmers and tradesmen in Illinois, Ohio, or Indiana, especially outside the major cities, were often at odds politically and economically with the financiers and factory owners who ruled the political roost in the northeast and urban areas. This circumstance made Midwesterners more likely to stand against a war that at least arguably advanced the economic interests of Yankee capitalists over Western agrarians. Midwesterners also tended to have more personal and family ties to the South than did New Englanders. While the peace movement's backbone was the Midwest, Copperheads were also well represented among a few other groups. Some more libertarian-minded Northerners suspected that the Lincoln government would use the war as a pretext for ever-increasing violations of the civil liberties of the administration's political rivals. This group refused to support a war that resulted in restrictions on rights that the U.S. Constitution was supposed to guarantee. You could also find Copperhead sympathies among Northern labor groups and German and Irish Catholics, especially in and around New York City. Among Irish New Yorkers, there was a perception that poor Irish immigrants and their children were being conscripted to fight a war on behalf of rich Yankees who wanted to free Southern slaves so that the freedmen could come north and work for lower wages. As the war went on and the death toll skyrocketed and permanently disabled soldiers returned north of the Mason-Dixon, the anti-war movement was bolstered by Northerners who simply wanted the violence and destruction to end. Widows and parents of deceased soldiers became disillusioned with the war, persuaded that victory was not achievable, or if it was, that the goals of preserving the Union or ending slavery in the South were coming at too high a price costing the lives of too many American boys and young men recklessly slaughtered in the prime of life. The Copperhead Movement had a media presence in anti-war newspapers throughout the North, and newspapers were where peace Democrats were the most visible. Small-town papers were more likely to lean Copperhead, but there were also several big-city papers that opposed the war. In several cases, editors who supported Lincoln's 1861 decision to send troops into the South had become committed copperheads by 1863 or 64. The Chicago Times and several New York papers, including the Metropolitan Record, the Journal of Commerce, and the New York Daily News, were important anti-war publications. The Metropolitan Record, a Catholic paper, argued that Lincoln had instigated the war, 
and that his actual purpose was not to preserve the Union. He was aiming to overthrow the constitutional system, robbing the states of their individual sovereignty, consolidating power in Washington and in himself, and turning the American Republic into a military empire. Given enough time, Lincoln and his abolitionist co-conspirators would force the northern working class into a condition of poverty and serfdom, and eventually use his military authority to strip away ordinary people's right to have any say in the government at all. As a quick footnote here, it's worth noting that there is a school of thought, mostly among libertarian historians, that the Civil War marks the birth of the American Empire. Now, the Metropolitan Record, which was the New York Catholic paper that we just mentioned, was also unambiguously hostile to conscription and made an attempt to destigmatize desertion by disillusioned Union soldiers. Editor John Mullaly was imprisoned and charged with inciting the 1863 Manhattan draft riots based on the newspaper's encouragement of draft resistance among Irish in New York. Now, at the risk of getting sidetracked, the Manhattan draft riots warrant a full episode, but we're going to have to settle for a brief summary. Long story short, there was a lot of anti-war sentiment among working class and poor New Yorkers. In 1863, the Lincoln administration imposed a harsh conscription policy that covered most young men, but allowed a potential draftee to avoid service by hiring a substitute or by paying a fee to Washington that was the equivalent of most workers' yearly income. The transparent attempt to conscript the poor while giving the rich a loophole to evade service amplified the hostility toward the draft. New York's first draft lottery was held on July 11th, a Saturday. The following Monday morning, July 13th, riots erupted in Manhattan and eventually spread to Staten Island and Brooklyn. The rioters initially focused on property destruction and fighting the hopelessly overwhelmed police who tried to restore order, but the rioters ended up targeting abolitionists and black New Yorkers. The rioting continued through July 16th before it was ultimately put down by a division of Union soldiers dispatched from the army still at Gettysburg. The reported death toll was 119, but that number is almost certainly way too low. It was probably more like a thousand. Several other northern cities had draft riots too, but New York's were an order of magnitude more intense. Incidentally, the Martin Scorsese movie Gangs of New York depicts the Manhattan draft riots. Check it out if you haven't seen it. It's a good flick and it has an excellent cast. Returning now to Copperheads in the Press. The high tide of Copperhead media was in the spring of 1864, at a time when massive casualties were continuing to pile up and progress towards victory was coming at a frustratingly slow pace. A May 1864 Chicago Times article Illustrative of the Copperhead Press's increasingly uninhibited hostility toward Lincoln and the war, concluded that, quote, This war is murder, and suggested that any Northerners still supporting the administration's war effort were complicit in the deaths being caused by President Lincoln's obstinance. The New York Daily News was probably the most prominent Copperhead paper. Owned by Copperhead politician Fernando Wood and run by his brother Benjamin Wood, the Daily News had been the American newspaper with the highest circulation prior to the start of the war. Now, we should note here that the 19th century New York Daily News, run by Benjamin Wood, is not the same paper as the current New York tabloid called the Daily News. 
The original New York Daily News closed up shop in 1906, and the modern Daily News was founded in 1919. Like many other Copperhead publications, the Daily News took a massive hit to its distribution when the Lincoln administration placed restrictions on publications critical of the war. Most notably, President Lincoln, acting through Postmaster General Montgomery Blair, suspended the right of anti-war papers to use the mail system for distribution, which prevented the Daily News from reaching readers outside of New York City proper. Banning critical papers from the mail system was effectively the 19th century equivalent of disallowing distribution of modern news stories on Twitter or Facebook. The journalists could still write their stories, but the number of eyeballs that they could expect to read them would be drastically reduced. While the Daily News was probably the most prominent Copperhead paper, the most effective Copperhead critic of the Lincoln administration in the press was arguably Marcus Pomeroy, a New York-born Wisconsinite and editor of the Lacrosse Daily Democrat. Often known by his nickname Brick, Pomeroy had been an ardent anti-secessionist, started the war as a 28-year-old die-hard Unionist, and even briefly served as a second lieutenant in the Union Army in 1861. But he quickly grew disillusioned with the war effort due to the tremendous bloodshed he witnessed on the battlefield and to what he saw as the Union Army's penchant for appropriating property of Southern civilians. So Pomeroy became first a lukewarm Unionist and then a full-fledged Copperhead, using his considerable talent as a writer to heap scorn on the Republican Party generally and especially on President Lincoln. Shortly after his conversion to the Peace Democrat position, the Wisconsin newspaperman Pomeroy declared that the war, quote, has become through the corruption of Lincoln's court and official missions but a murderous crusade for plunder and party power. Its aim is to create a moneyed aristocracy, compel the people to support it, and the time shall come when the people who are being murdered shall know the crime committed against them. I will gain an audience first, and then woe betide the party in power. I will be no party to this robbery. The more we see of this war the more we feel like swearing at the fanatical fire-eaters and abolitionists who brought it on, end quote. Note that Pomeroy directs his ire at the Lincoln administration, but he blames both southern fire-eaters and northern abolitionists, in other words, the extremists on either side, for instigating the war. Pomeroy's ferociously critical anti-Lincoln editorials and mocking poems went viral in the old-school style in Copperhead circles throughout the North. His editorials labeled Lincoln the Widowmaker and implored readers to, quote, look upon his face not as that of an honest man or a statesman equal to this emergency, but as the fanatical tool of fanatics, the greatest widowmaker God ever cursed mankind with. He has filled the land with fear and mourning, caused a million brave men to be sacrificed for nothing, scattered smutty jokes and bones of soldiers over the land as a novice sows oats, end quote. In the aftermath of Gettysburg, President Lincoln declared August 5th, 1863, a national day of prayer. Pomeroy suggested that his readers beseech the Almighty to, quote, Remove by death the present administration from power and give us in their place statesmen instead of jokers and clowns, honest men instead of speculators, end quote. 
Another cynical prayer that Pomeroy published pleaded, quote, May Almighty God forbid that we are to have two terms of the rottenest, most stinking, ruin-working smallpox ever conceived by fiends or mortals in the shape of two terms of Abe Lincoln's administration, end quote. And still another Pomeroy article aimed at Lincoln directed the audience, quote, to weep over the homes he has made desolate, the army of crippled and maimed men he is sending home to take the places of the perfect ones he called away. Count the widows he has made by his clownish blunderings. Look at the city police reports of girls forced into houses of prostitution to escape starvation. Count, it figures will do it, the millions of orphans he has made. Groan and toil and sweat under the taxation his hell-born administration has entailed upon the land. And then shout in joy, hurrah for Abe Lincoln, the widow-maker of the 19th century. End quote. Pomeroy's editorials also maligned Lincoln's supporters as the 19th century equivalent of NPCs and shills. Quote, Come, you minions and paid enthusiasts, form a procession, march to the graveyards, throw to the breeze a flag with skull and crossbones painted in black, and shout in drunken glee for your pet, the Widowmaker. End quote. According to Marcus Pomeroy, Midwesterners who supported the war were being played for fools. The New England Yankees running the Republican Party were using war policy to reduce Midwestern farmers to serfdom the economic slaves of northeastern bankers and industrialists. Pomeroy answered accusations of treason by proclaiming, Abraham Lincoln is the traitor. It is he who has warred upon the Constitution. We have not. He has broken his oath and lent himself to corruptionists and fanatics. End quote. Like other copperheads, Brick Pomeroy's standing was seriously diminished when the tides of the war emphatically turned in the second half of 1864. In Pomeroy's case, it proved to be only a temporary setback. Although the lacrosse Democrats' circulation dwindled for a while to almost nothing, within three years of the war's end, Pomeroy had rebuilt the paper to 100,000 subscribers. His talent and commitment to Democrat politics caught the attention of the big boss man, William Boss Tweed, who invited Pomeroy to move to New York and run the Tammany Hall-friendly New York Democrat. After a financial scandal brought about Boss Tweed's downfall, the details of which Brick Pomeroy did not hesitate to publish, Pomeroy set up shop first in Chicago and then in Denver. While out west, the newspapermen made mine and railroad investments that proved highly profitable. Armed with his new fortune, Marcus Pomeroy spent his later years back in New York, working at a more leisurely pace as the editor of a highbrow periodical called Advanced Thought. Before moving on, I should note that the quotes from Brick Pomeroy's newspaper articles come courtesy of a 1951 article in the Wisconsin Magazine of History written by Frank Clement entitled Brick Pomeroy, Copperhead and Curmudgeon. The Copperhead Movement's harsh criticisms of President Lincoln threatened the Union war effort by hurting Lincoln's popularity and weakening the president's effectiveness as a national leader. A wounded Lincoln was less able to rally public support for mobilization and encourage hundreds of thousands of men to join in the fight. And, of course, as Election Day 1864 drew nearer, the prospect of a Lincoln political defeat 
could embolden the rebels and hurt Union morale. The Copperheads were essentially a minority faction in the Democrat Party in the northern states. In other words, they represented less than half of the party out of power in Washington. However, as is often the case with motivated and focused political factions, Copperheads managed to punch above their weight, at least until later in 1864. Most Copperheads focused their efforts on politically defeating radical Republicans in general, but Copperhead rhetoric was centered around one primary target, President Lincoln himself. They were as much an anti-Lincoln faction as they were an anti-war faction. From the Copperhead point of view, Lincoln was an aspiring authoritarian who had betrayed the Constitution by seizing power beyond his legal authority and by using the Union Army to impose martial law on the states, usurping the individual state's governing authority and essentially overthrowing state governments by force. Copperhead saw Lincoln as not just a threat to the individual states, but also as a threat to each and every American citizen. Copperheads argued that Lincoln was using the war as an excuse to deprive even pro-war northerners of the rights guaranteed by the Constitution. Copperhead politicians and publishers pointed out that President Lincoln had no legal authority to suspend constitutional rights, but he did so anyway, and that made him a dictator, and dictators don't generally give up their powers willingly. Now, I don't know if it's fair to say that Copperheads were pro-slavery, though some of them seem to have held that position, but they were definitely anti-abolitionist. They emphasized the role of abolitionists in instigating the war and argued to working-class whites in the North that the abolitionists, who disproportionately consisted of wealthy New Englanders, intended to use former slaves to reduce wages by flooding the labor market. Abolitionists, Copperheads alleged, also wanted to reduce the working class's collective political power by turning freed slaves into millions of new voters who would reliably support the Republican candidates chosen by the Northeastern financiers and industrialists. Their focus on abolitionists pushed Copperheads in a racially charged direction. There were general objections to making freed slaves legally equal to white citizens, as evidenced by the Copperheads' opposition to the 13th Amendment, though they had lost their clout by the time it was up for discussion. And some of the more radical Copperheads argued that the Republicans' ultimate purpose was to reverse the country's racial hierarchy. Clement Vallandigham, in an anti-war speech given in Mount Vernon, Ohio, that led to his arrest, argued that Lincoln's goal was, quote, the liberation of the blacks and the enslavement of the whites, end quote. An often repeated charge that Copperhead politicians leveled against Republican opponents was that they valued their own ambitions, or upper-class political and economic interests, above the lives of the ordinary people sent into the meat grinder. Republican politicians wanted to keep the war going, regardless of how many other people's children, fathers, and brothers had to die for the cause. Now, the accusation that politicians are indifferent to the bloody cost of war because it isn't them or their families who actually pay that price was probably less on the nose in the 19th century when it was still common for sons of upper-class families to view military service as a patriotic duty than in the post-World War II era. But the idea of a rich man's war and a poor man's fight isn't new. 
In fact, that particular phrase comes from the U.S. Civil War, and according to University of Virginia history professor and Civil War specialist Carolyn Janney, the disparity was more pronounced in the Union Army, over half of the soldiers of which were poor by 19th century standards, and often motivated to volunteer by unemployment. In opposing the war, Copperhead political leaders frequently emphasized the wide economic gulf between the wealthy politicians who pushed for the war and the working-class soldiers who did the actual killing and dying. You will likely note that many Vietnam protesters made the same point, and that a variation of this argument is often made today with regard to the mounting casualties in the Russia-Ukraine war. Now, in Civil War-era Washington, Copperhead politicians could do little more than give impassioned speeches in Congress, which they frequently did. The Peace Democrat Caucus was too small to force a change in policy. At the state level, though, Copperheads carried much more weight. In Indiana and Illinois, Copperheads were a formidable force in the state legislatures. In New York, a popular anti-Lincoln politician named Horatio Seymour won the 1862 election for governor. The Confederates were certainly aware of the potential threat to the Union war effort that the Peace Democrats posed, especially in the later years of the war, encouraging the Northern Peace Movement and the electoral defeat of Lincoln became one of the South's most realistic strategies for a successful outcome. Predictably, the most prominent Copperhead politicians came mostly from the Midwest, though there were some Northeastern Copperheads too. The most well-known, at least in history books, was a U.S. congressman from Ohio named Clement Vallandigham, known to his friends as Val. Vallandigham was 40 when the war started. He was Ohio-born and had been involved in Ohio politics for 15 years, holding his seat in the House for four years. Vallandigham was a lawyer by trade, and before the war had been a close friend of another well-known Midwestern lawyer. No, not Lincoln, but future Secretary of War Edwin Stanton. It's like if Donald Rumsfeld and Ron Paul or Dennis Kucinich had been good buddies. Pre-war, the Ohio Representative Vallandigham considered himself an anti-abolitionist, believing that the abolitionist's rhetoric and sometimes extreme tactics were aggravating the fissures in American politics. On the question of slavery itself, he took the state's rights position. Essentially, the slavery issue was not for the federal government to decide, and it should be left to the individual states. In one of those strange coincidences from history, Vallandigham happened to be in the Harper's Ferry area when John Brown raided the U.S. arsenal, and he had the opportunity to speak with Brown after his arrest. The future Copperhead concluded of Brown's raid, quote, The conspiracy was the natural and necessary consequence of the doctrine proclaimed every day, year in and year out, by the apostles of abolition, end quote. Brown's punishment was appropriate, according to Vallandigham, but, quote, Guiltier than he, and with his blood upon their heads, are the false and cowardly prophets and teachers of abolition. End quote. Vallandigham was essentially making the argument that today gets called stochastic terrorism, which is the idea that prominent figures pushing inflammatory rhetoric are responsible if the rhetoric inspires another person to engage in violence. After Lincoln's election, 
Vallandigham concluded that the southern states had the right to secede, and he supported the failed Crittenden Compromise, which was the brainchild of Kentucky Senator John Crittenden, whose uh, sons George and Thomas would become Civil War generals, one Confederate and one Union. Vallandigham also came up with his own proposal to avoid war, which involved a complicated series of constitutional amendments that would have resulted in major changes to the country's governing structure, including the creation of four regional blocks that would each hold a veto power over federal action. Vallandigham confirmed his Copperhead status by vigorously opposing any military action, and he loudly criticized the Lincoln administration's conduct of the war and cracked down on anti-war activities. The Ohio congressman took the position that the Lincoln administration's true purpose in prosecuting the war was not just to preserve the Union or to emancipate black slaves in the South, but also to subjugate white Southerners, forcing them into a condition of effective serfdom for the benefit of the Northeastern industrialists and bankers who were the true power in Republican Party politics. Those kinds of stances lost Vallandigham his bid for re-election in 1862, and he was also unsuccessful as the Democrat candidate for governor of Ohio in 1863. As the symbolic figurehead of the Copperhead movement, though, he retained a great deal of behind-the-scenes power in the party. Vallandigham remained active in politics after the war as a harsh critic of Reconstruction. He died relatively young, losing his life in a strange accident at age 50 in 1871. He was working as a lawyer, representing the defendant in a murder case pending in Lebanon, Ohio. His client was charged with murder resulting from the death of another man who died from a gunshot wound sustained in a barroom brawl. Vallandigham's chief argument in his client's defense was that the deceased had actually shot himself in the stomach while pulling his own pistol. So Vallandigham and a few other lawyers were meeting in a hotel room going over the specifics of the defense and how to present it to the jury. Vallandigham wanted to demonstrate his theory about how the alleged murder victim may have actually shot himself. He pulled a pistol from his pocket and showed his fellow lawyers how, during that movement, the pistol was at one point aimed at Vallandigham's own torso. Now, he knew better than to act out the victim's possible movements with a loaded weapon. But unfortunately, he had mistakenly swapped the unloaded demo pistol with another pistol that was indeed loaded. During the demonstration, the loaded firearm went off, propelling the bullet into Vallandigham's abdomen, as predicted, and ultimately leading to the former Copperhead's untimely death the next day. The silver lining, I guess, was that Val's defense theory was persuasive, and the jury acquitted his client only for the man to die in another barroom shootout just a couple years later. During the Civil War, Ohio's congressional delegation included a second prominent Buckeye Copperhead by the name of Alexander Long, who was less influential than Vallandigham and is less historically famous now. Long was born in Greenville in far western Pennsylvania, and as a young adult, he had moved to Green Township in far western Ohio. He started off as a farm worker, doing the 19th century equivalent of night school in his early 20s to make up for the lack of childhood education. After becoming sufficiently educated, the future congressman spent eight years as a schoolteacher, during which time he continued his adult education by studying law as an apprentice to a local lawyer. 
Alexander Long earned an Ohio law license at age 30 and got involved in Ohio politics soon after. Interestingly, Alexander Long, like Clement Vallandigham, also had a close friend who would later serve in the Lincoln administration. In Long's case, the friend was fellow Ohio lawyer-turned-politician Salmon Chase, who soon after became a U.S. Senator, then Secretary of the Treasury to President Lincoln, and then had a near-decade run as Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. Through most of the 1850s, Alexander Long stepped away from electoral politics and focused on what became a very successful legal career in Cincinnati. When the Civil War started, 46-year-old Alexander Long jumped back into politics with a victorious campaign for Congress in 1862. Once in Washington, Congressman Alexander Long all but guaranteed that he would serve just the one term by staking out a controversial position on the war. He was unambiguously against it. Long argued against the war on states' rights grounds. Ultimate sovereignty rested with the individual states. And according to Congressman Long, the federal government lacked the constitutional authority to make war against its constituent states. The war was framed alternatively as a war against the Confederacy as an independent nation. Then it was a war, quote, of conquest and subjugation which is exactly how he described the Lincoln administration's war policy. Now, these may or may not be interesting theoretical arguments with a solid legal grounding. Who knows? But when the chips are down, that's not what matters. What matters is who holds sway over the greatest number of men with guns. Or as the Roman general Pompey Magnus is supposed to have put it, don't quote laws to men with swords. Although Representative Alexander Long's arguments for peace made little impact in Washington, he continued to make them, which led to the event for which history best remembers him. It occurred on April 9, 1864. Long held the floor during a House debate and used the opportunity to formally advocate for peace through an official recognition of the Confederacy as a sovereign nation. Alexander Long had consistently criticized government policy, but advocating for official recognition of the independent Confederacy was a bridge too far. Newly minted Speaker of the House Schuyler Colfax, President Grant's future vice president, responded to Alexander Long's motion by moving to expel the Ohio Copperhead from the Congress. Expulsion is obviously an extreme sanction and has been received by only six congressmen in U.S. history. Three of those expulsions came in 1861, targeted at border state representatives who advocated for the Confederacy while their states, Missouri and Kentucky, remained in the Union. After that, the next didn't come until 120 years later, when Pennsylvanian Michael Myers got the axe for his actions on Halloween. Now, he was among the six congressmen and one senator caught up in the abscam bribery sting where the uh, FBI gave a convicted con man lenient treatment, 150 grand, and a million-dollar budget to pose as an Arab sheik looking to bribe politicians for favors designed to facilitate Atlantic City investments. The fifth House expulsion was Ohio Congressman James Traficant in 2002. Traficant was convicted of using campaign funds for personal use after earning the ire of permanent Washington for taking a litany of positions unpopular in the Beltway, including, inter alia, 
immigration reductions, significant restraints on the IRS and FBI, and arguing that a Ukraine-born Ohio citizen accused of being a Nazi guard had been denied a fair trial, a position with which Israel's Supreme Court subsequently agreed. And last but certainly not least, the most recent expulsion, and the only Republican on the list, is the 2023 expulsion of freshman New York representative George Santos, whose list of transgressions is certainly the most comical and immune to parody of the bunch. Returning now to Congressman Alexander Long in April 1864, Speaker Colfax's expulsion effort was unsuccessful, and after a few days, tempers cooled, and the Speaker settled for an official House censure of the Ohio congressman based upon Long's, quote, treasonable utterances on the House floor. If you're curious, there have been 28 official censures of sitting congressmen, four of those coming within the past two years, including recent censures for posting a stupid meme and pulling a fire alarm, proving that voters' suspicions about Congress's seriousness, or lack thereof, are well-founded. Now, regardless of what you think of Representative Alexander Long's position on the war, you do have to give him credit for consistency. In the 1864 presidential campaign, Long refused to vote for, let alone endorse, either candidate because they both favored continuing the war. Representative Long likewise refused to give any ground on the issue during his own unsuccessful re-election campaign. After losing his bid for re-election, Alexander Long was done with elected office, though he continued to be a player in Democrat Party politics for another decade. Now, one final uh, interesting story about Copperhead Alexander Long takes place at the 1868 Democrat convention, where Long was a delegate. Former Congressman Long led a faction campaigning to nominate Long's old friend, Salmon Chase, as the Democrat nominee for president. Now, this is uh, interesting political trivia for a couple reasons. First, Salmon Chase had started his political career as a Whig, became a leader of the short-lived Free Soil Party, and then was involved in the 1860 founding of the Republican Party, after which he served in the Lincoln administration. By 1868, Salmon Chase was seeking the Democrat Party's nomination, so Salmon Chase was basically a free agent when it came to partisan politics. And Salmon Chase was also, while seeking the nomination in 1868, the sitting Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. It's hard to imagine a Supreme Court Justice today campaigning for the presidency. I guess it wasn't all that outlandish in 1868. But notwithstanding Chase's exceptional resume, Alexander Long's bid to win the 1868 nomination for his old friend Salmon Chase was unsuccessful. The opportunity to lose to U.S. Grant instead went to Horatio Seymour. Now, Horatio Seymour, a famous New York politician of the era, is worth discussing further because while he is sometimes lumped in with the Copperhead movement, that's probably an inaccurate characterization. Seymour had served as governor of New York for two years early in the 1850s and was a Democrat Party insider like Clement Vallandigham and Alexander Long. Before the war, Seymour pushed the Crittenden Compromise, and once the war started, the former New York governor was a strident critic of the Lincoln administration, taking issue with, for example, 
the administration's breaches of civil liberties, conscription policies, and profuse printing of paper money. Campaigning as an opponent of the Lincoln administration, Seymour won another term as governor of New York in 1863. Although he was an unambiguous foe of Lincoln on most policy issues, Horatio Seymour was not a proper copperhead because he wasn't totally against the war. During the 1868 campaign, Grant's surrogates spun Seymour's criticisms of the Lincoln administration into full-blown copperheadism, helping Grant to cruise to a 53-47% victory in the popular vote and a wider margin in the Electoral College. The Republican propaganda effort during that election is probably why the label copperhead is often applied to Horatio Seymour, but he was not actually a copperhead under a strict definition of the term. Now, if you want a true, dyed-in-the-wool, unabashed copperhead, look no further than yet another Midwestern congressman, the famous copperhead Jason Voorhees. No, his name is actually Daniel Voorhees. Uh, That was a play on the the earlier Michael Myers reference. All right, Daniel Voorhees of Indiana served three terms in the House, representing southeastern Indiana starting in 1861 lost the seat in a controversial election, and then won it back for two more terms starting in 1869. Unlike the Ohio representative Vallandigham, the Indianan and Voorhees had a friendly relationship with President Lincoln that originated in their pre-politics careers as lawyers. In 1859, Voorhees defended John E. Cook, one of John Brown's raiders, in a trial after the Harper's Ferry raid. Cook was convicted of murder but found not guilty of treason, unlike other raiders. Voorhees' stellar representation of John Cook earned him a national reputation that led to his 1860 election to Congress. Once in Washington, Daniel Voorhees was outspoken in his vigorous opposition to Republican policies generally and to the war specifically. Historian Kenneth Stamp provides a vivid description of Congressman Voorhees' advocacy for the Copperhead position, emphasizing his, quote, hot temper, passionate partisanship, and stirring eloquence, along with the tall physical stature that earned Voorhees the nickname the Tall Sycamore of the Wabash. Stamp writes, quote, His bitter cries against protective tariffs and national banks, his suspicion of the Eastern Yankee, his devotion to personal liberty, his defense of the Constitution and states' rights faithfully reflected the views of his constituents. Like other Jacksonian agrarians, he resented the political and economic revolution then in progress. Voorhees idealized a way of life that he thought was being destroyed by the current rulers of his country. End quote. Now, the controversial election that we mentioned earlier was Voorhees' re-election bid in 1864. Voorhees won, or he appeared to have won, against the Republican candidate Henry Washburn, commander of an Indiana Volunteer Regiment under Sheridan. Voorhees retained the House seat in March 1865, and he held the seat through February 1866. Then, however, Washburn contested the election and the dispute was put to a House vote. With Republicans in the clear majority, they seated their candidate, and Voorhees was sent home nearly a year into the term, which coincidentally secured the two-thirds majority that the Republicans would need to override any inconvenient presidential vetoes from Andrew Johnson. Daniel Voorhees set out the 1866 House election and then won again in 1868, 
Once back in Congress after the war, he became one of the harshest critics of Republican Reconstruction policy, giving impassioned speeches on the House floor recounting the injuries that Voorhees believed radical Republicans had visited on the South. Quoting an 1872 speech that Daniel Voorhees gave from the House floor, quote, You tore down the government of 11 states. You left not one stone upon another. You not only said who should be elected to rule over these states, but you said who should elect them. You fixed the quality of the voters. You purged the ballot box of intelligence and virtue, and in their stead you placed the most ignorant and unqualified in the world to rule over these people. You determined that your party should have undisputed possession and enjoyment of her offices, her honors, and her substance. There is no form of ruin to which she has not fallen a prey, no cup of humiliation and suffering her people have not drained to the dregs. There she stands, the result of your handiwork, bankrupt in money, ruined in credit, her prosperity blighted at home and abroad, without peace, happiness, or hope. Her sins may have been many and deep, and the color of scarlet, yet they will become as white as snow in comparison with those that you have committed against her in the hour of her helplessness and distress. I challenge the darkest annals of the human race for a parallel to the robberies which have been perpetrated on these 11 American states. Had you sown seeds of kindness and goodwill, they would long ere this have blossomed into prosperity and peace. You would have reaped a golden harvest of contentment and obedience. But as you planted in hate and nurtured in corruption, so have been the fruits which you have gathered. End quote. Representative Voorhees concluded that white Southerners were as politically powerless as, quote, an African bondsman on the auction block before the war, end quote. Echoing Vallandigham's earlier concerns, Representative Voorhees asserted that white Southerners were as politically powerless as, quote, an African bondsman on the auction block before the war. The liberation of one race has been followed by the enslavement of another, end quote. Now, Congressman Daniel Voorhees didn't hold back his opinions, but he was by all accounts personally popular in Washington and back home in Indiana. One of the Republicans at whom Voorhees' rhetoric was targeted nonetheless declared him, quote, a very kind-hearted man indeed, end quote. And that's probably why, unlike some other Copperheads, Daniel Voorhees continued to enjoy a successful political career long after the war, highlighted by a 20-year run as one of Indiana's U.S. Senators. Throughout that time, Voorhees generally favored populist issues, advocating for free silver, reduced tariffs to help Western farmers, and decentralization of government. Daniel Voorhees died in April 1897, a month after exiting the Senate and a few months shy of his 70th birthday. There's one more famous Copperhead figure we need to mention. We kind of saved the best for last because he's one of the most interesting uh, because of how he fits into the larger historical picture and because he was a, a genuine maverick type character. And that, my friends, is Fernando Wood of New York. Writer Chris McNichol, in a review of Jerome Muscat's biography of Wood, describes the New York mayor and congressman as, quote, a talented scoundrel of some import, end quote, which seems to me an apt description. 
We mentioned the movie Gangs of New York earlier. Uh, that film highlights the anti-Republican, anti-war, rebellious, and somewhat pro-Southern streak in New York City politics of the 1860s. Fernando Wood was cut from that cloth, and he would have found common ground with Bill the Butcher on a lot of issues, with the notable exception that Wood was not hostile to the city's Irish immigrant population, and he even had political ties to the Dead Rabbits gang. At various times throughout his political career, Fernando Wood was accused of fraud, graft, political espionage, abuse of his official powers for political purposes, misuse of the police force under his supervision, and encouraging the activities of political gangs. But for the most part, he avoided legal liability. Now, notwithstanding the Spanish first name, Fernando Wood was of English and German stock though he did live in Cuba with his family for a spell during his childhood before finding a permanent home in New York. Now, Wood, uh, who stood over six feet tall, which of course was less common then than now, and was described by a contemporary as strikingly handsome, initially got involved in politics in his early 20s as an anti-bank Jacksonian Democrat and a rising star in New York's powerful Tammany Hall machine which helped him to win a single term in the U.S. House in the early 1840s. Fernando Wood stepped away from politics at the end of that term, and he focused on his business and family pursuits, which included fathering 16 children. Despite coming from modest means, he proved to have a real good nose for business, especially real estate, and he took advantage of hot markets. By 1860, his personal fortune including real estate holdings in New York and San Francisco, was worth about a million dollars, which would be in the neighborhood of about 30 million today. Fernando Wood officially returned to politics in 1850 with an unsuccessful run for mayor, followed by a successful effort in 1854, making him the first New York City mayor from the Tammany Hall organization. During his victorious campaign, he courted support from both nativists, uh, Bill the Butcher's crowd, and from the city's Irish immigrant community, an easier feat to pull off when there was no risk of your campaign speeches ending up on YouTube. Now, Fernando Wood was a mostly successful mayor early on, spearheading several popular infrastructure projects and the creation of Central Park, but marred by accusations of corruption, which were probably true, but in all fairness were pretty much par for the course in city politics. Things started to run off the rails in his second term. The Republican legislature in Albany accused New York City Mayor Fernando Wood of doling out government funds to his political allies and mismanaging the municipal police for his own partisan ends. Again, probably true, but not unusual in New York politics. Where Wood really got into trouble was that at the same time the Republican state legislature was aiming for him, Tammany leaders withdrew their backing because Wood was not spreading around enough cash to the machine. The Albany Republicans, in an effort to rein in Mayor Wood's increasing executive power, enacted legislation called the Police Reform Act, which officially dissolved the New York Municipal Police in favor of a new state-backed Metropolitan Police Department. Mayor Wood resolved to resist the encroachment on the city's self-rule, and the conflict came to a head in June 1857 
with an absolutely bonkers event called the Great Police Riot. Now, the story of New York's Great Police Riot would would make for a top-notch two-hour podcast episode all its own. But that's not what we're doing here. So, long story short, we have two antagonistic New York City police departments. There's the original Municipal PD, which the state legislature just ordered disbanded. And there is the Metro PD that Albany had just created to replace the Municipal PD. The impetus for the riot is New York Governor John King sending his man, Daniel Conover, to assume a recently vacated commissioner position. Mayor Wood appointed someone else and had Conover taken into custody by the same municipal PD that Albany had just ordered disbanded. Albany responded by issuing a warrant for Mayor Fernando Wood's arrest. A single Metro police captain came to City Hall to arrest Mayor Wood, who refused to be taken. When the Metro captain tried to enforce the warrant by force, the municipal PD officers in City Hall evicted the Metro captain from the premises. Not to be stymied, the state-backed Metro PD responded by sending over 50 officers to City Hall to enforce the warrant and to arrest Mayor Wood. The municipal cops backing Mayor Wood resisted and a nearly hour-long brawl ensued with cops fighting cops on the steps of City Hall and throughout the building itself. 53 cops were seriously injured. One of them was permanently disabled before Mayor Wood's municipal PD claimed victory in the brawl. Now, visualize that scene for a second. Two antagonistic police forces brawling on the steps of City Hall. Now, add in Batman and the Joker backing opposing sides, and I think we've got something really special. Okay, Mayor Wood's battlefield victory was predictably short-lived. The Albany side brought in Major General Charles Sanford, commanding a regiment of New York militia, the equivalent of sending in the National Guard today. Sanford's well-armed men took up positions surrounding City Hall. Mayor Wood recognized that the jig was up and consented to being taken into custody. Again, this scene really needs a gravelly-voiced Batman telling Mayor Wood that he needs to choose his battles wisely. Now, you would think that instigating an event like the Great Police Riot would have been the end of Fernando Wood's career in politics, right? Au contraire. He was detained for only about a half hour before making bail, and the pending charges were dismissed on a technical point by a politically sympathetic judge named Murray Hoffman, who described Mayor Wood as a, quote, law-abiding and order-loving citizen, end quote. No further charges were brought against Mayor Wood over the affair, and the city of New York picked up the tab for compensating the police officers who filed a lawsuit for injuries that resulted from the riot. Fernando Wood completed his term as mayor, and then lost his bid for re-election at the end of the year in a contest that was remarkably close, considering that Tammany Hall backed the other candidate. The now former mayor, Fernando Wood, regrouped and started a campaign to re-establish his brand, buoyed in large part by his purchase of the New York Daily News, to be led by its new editor, Benjamin Wood, Fernando's brother. Fernando Wood threw his hat back in the ring, for the next New York City mayoral election in 1860 and cruised to a victory and a third term as mayor. 
And this is where Mayor Fernando Wood becomes one of the most well-known wearers of the Copperhead label. As the southern states begin to secede, and as the prospect of war becomes more real, Fernando Wood was not shy about voicing his opposition to military action. With national politics falling apart in early 1861, Mayor Wood even proposed to the city council that New York City itself secede. Not to join the Confederacy, but for the city to become a sovereign state in the model of Venice and other independent Italian cities of earlier centuries. Now I'm going to pause here for a second to let that fully sink in. In 1861, when the southern states began seceding from the Union, the response from the sitting mayor of New York, not the mayor of Baltimore or Cincinnati, the mayor of New York City, was to go to the city council and say, dudes, we should get in on that action too. Now, the city council did not seriously consider Mayor Wood's proposal, but I gotta say it again, this episode has the makings of a solid Batman story. The Dark Knight's mercurial, sometimes ally, sometimes nuisance, Mayor Fernando Wood takes on Tammany Hall and then leads a movement for an independent Gotham City, only for Oswald Coppelpot or some other villain to exploit the opportunity and become president or governor. Now Batman has to bring down the corrupt regime to restore order in Gotham. I'm telling you, there's something there. All right. Uh, something to keep in mind here is that Fernando Wood's anti-war, anti-Lincoln, and sometimes pro-Confederacy positions were not really all that out of the ordinary in New York City Democrat politics. Some of the anti-war sentiment among New York City Democrats, uh, like Fernando Wood, was rooted in economic interests. More than just about anywhere else in the northern states, New York City had a vested interest in southern cotton. The war was destined to stop the flow of cotton from the south to the city's mills and factories, which could cost the industrialists a fortune and significantly increase unemployment among regular wage earners, which, of course, often brings social instability. And there's also a racial element. Gotham's nativists and Irish immigrants could agree that they were not interested in having their blood and treasure put toward the emancipation of black slaves hundreds of miles away. Mayor Wood put a more tactful spin on it, arguing that New York's responsibility was to downtrodden New Yorkers in need, not to slaves in other states. But Fernando Wood was not above playing the race card when he found it convenient. Being anti-war and anti-Lincoln as New York mayor during the initial years of the war did not hurt Wood politically. Instead, and as a testament to his popularity, Fernando Wood campaigned for and won another term in the U.S. House in the 1862 election, following his third and final term as New York mayor. Back in the House, Congressman Wood joined with Midwestern Copperheads in opposing the Lincoln administration and in arguing for a peaceful resolution of the conflict with the states. His experience in New York's ethnic identity politics transitioned into racial identity politics at the national level, and Wood was at the forefront of the attempts to block passage of the proposed 13th Amendment to formally abolish American slavery, which Wood argued was an infringement on state sovereignty and on property rights. I don't see Batman having his back on that one. Congressman Fernando Wood was one of many anti-war politicians damaged electorally when the tides of war turned in 1864. 
But after losing a re-election bid and missing a congressional term at the tail end of the war, Fernando Wood bounced back yet again and started his longest run in Congress, winning seven consecutive House terms from the 1866 campaign through the end of his life, 14 years later. Fernando Wood was remarkably independent during his final stretch in Congress. Like many other Democrats, he pushed back against Republican Reconstruction policies, but he generally sided with Republicans on economic issues. He remained popular in New York throughout, winning re-election with little difficulty. But his tendency to vote with Republicans when he preferred their stance on economic policy turned off some fellow Washington Democrats. Even so, his congressional run was highlighted by a stint as majority leader and the chairmanship of the powerful House Ways and Means Committee. As we've noted, popular support for the peace movement waxed and waned with the successes and failures of the Union Army, and high casualties in particular made the peace Democrat position more popular. The apex of Copperhead influence came at the 1864 Democratic Party Convention, held in Chicago in August. Leading up to the convention, brutally high casualty numbers from Grant's Overland campaign had recently dominated the news, and peace, even if it required separation, had become a much more politically viable position. Arch-Copperhead Clement Vallandigham, who attended the convention after returning to the country illegally, used the peace movement's momentum to exercise considerable influence and earn valuable concessions from the National Democrat Party, though Copperheadism remained a minority position in the party. Now, Vallandigham was not personally seeking a nomination, and a peace Democrat nominee for president was not an attainable goal. But the Copperheads did get their guy, Congressman George Pendleton of Ohio, named as the vice presidential nominee running alongside presidential nominee General George McClellan. McClellan was a wholehearted critic of his former boss, Honest Abe, but he was not a copperhead, and he made clear that he had no intention of giving up the Union for peace. The nomination of General McClellan and Congressman Pendleton was intended as a compromise to satisfy peace and war Democrats alike, each faction getting one of their guys on the ballot. The actual result was that both factions were disappointed and unenthusiastic about the ticket. War policy was the single most important issue of the day, and it was awkward for the two candidates' positions on that issue to be as at odds as they were. What was probably the Copperhead faction's biggest triumph was securing in the official Democrat Party platform a clear call for peace and a negotiated end of the war. It was a major coup to have the peace platform endorsed at that high a level. However, that too turned into a problem that ultimately hurt the party's chance for success. McClellan, the presidential candidate, was not on board, and his formal disavowal of the peace Democrat position discredited the party platform and gave a clear impression of the Democrat party's discord heading into the election. That discord left the Democrat Party disorganized and less able to mount an effective challenge to Lincoln. But in spring and summer 1864, even many Republicans were doubting whether Lincoln was the right man for the job. And there was talk of nominating a different man to lead the National Republican Party. 
a faction of radical Republicans sought to replace Lincoln with former California Governor and Union Army General John C. Fremont. Fremont ended up bowing out of the race a couple months before the general election, but he left with a Parthian shot aimed directly for the president, who he called, quote, politically, militarily, and financially a failure, end quote. The political failure of the Northern Peace Movement ultimately resulted not from clever politics or from political repression by the Lincoln administration, but instead it resulted from unambiguous Union success on the battlefield. Throughout the summer of 1864, the Army of the Potomac's casualties continued to pile up and Grant's progress came frustratingly slow. At the same time, General Sherman's success further south was difficult to measure and hard to see in Washington. Against this backdrop, Copperhead popularity surged. That situation came to an emphatic end when Sherman's army captured Atlanta on September 2nd. The fall of Atlanta was a huge blow to the Confederacy, and perhaps more importantly, it was concrete evidence of Union success and near-term victory. In light of Sherman's success, it began to look like Union victory was more of a when than an if. Combined with General Philip Sheridan's rampage in the Shenandoah Valley, the Union had all the momentum heading into Election Day. That state of affairs took the wind out of the Copperhead sails, and the peace movement ceased to be a major factor in Northern politics. And, where Lincoln's re-election appeared very much in doubt only a few months prior, as Lincoln himself recognized, the evidence of progress and renewed promise of victory catapulted Honest Abe to an emphatic electoral victory, claiming all but three of the states in contention. The 1864 congressional elections were similarly lopsided. After the election, Republicans, mostly running under the National Union ticket due to a confusing series of events not relevant to this particular episode, Republicans had an easy supermajority, with 150 of the 193 House seats compared to just 33 Democrat seats. The other 10 were distributed among independents and representatives from forgotten, short-lived minor parties. The details of the 1864 elections get a little confusing, but the bottom line is that when all was said and done, the Democrats had little ability to oppose the Republicans at the federal level for the duration of the war. We've noted two main issues that motivated the Copperheads. First was opposition to the war itself. That argument was essentially, why are we willing to see thousands and then tens of thousands and then hundreds of thousands of good men killed and wounded just to keep the southern states from leaving the Union when the majority of the people who live there no longer want to be subject to Washington's rule? And the second big issue was the Lincoln administration's infringements on civil liberties especially in the states that had not seceded. Now, Abraham Lincoln has assumed a place in the American pantheon, so it's tempting to write off the accusations as propaganda from his political opponents and from the Confederates. Now, there was certainly plenty of that going on, but when you dig into it, there definitely were some questionable policies that gave the Copperheads legitimate grounds for complaining about legal violations and for accusing Lincoln of overreach. Historian James G. Randall writes, quote, No president has carried the power of presidential edict and executive order, independently of Congress, so far as Lincoln did. It would not be easy to state what Lincoln conceived to be the limit of his powers. End quote. 
So the question shouldn't be, did the Lincoln administration infringe constitutional rights? Yes, it did. The question needs to be, was Lincoln justified in taking the actions that he took? You can't answer that question fairly without considering that President Lincoln faced a vexing dilemma. He believed, perhaps rightfully, that the government could not continue business as usual and still keep the country together. As Lincoln himself put it, quote, It has long been a grave question whether any government, not too strong for the liberties of its people, can be strong enough to maintain its existence in great emergencies. End quote. Lincoln saw a choice between two distasteful options, honor constitutional liberties and lose the Union, or preserve the Union and violate constitutional rights. Now, you can argue that it would have been possible to save the Union while still treating constitutional rights as sacred and inviolable. That may or may not be right, but it is not the way that Lincoln viewed the situation. As a side note, there may be an element of self-fulfilling prophecy here, if that's the right term. Uh, on the part of the Copperheads, because, to a certain extent, Copperhead accusations that the Lincoln administration was an authoritarian regime bent on ending the people's constitutionally protected rights was at least in part what prompted the genuine violations. Alright, so with all that said, what actions of the Lincoln administration were the Copperheads actually complaining about? Does Honest Abe also deserve the name Lincoln the Tyrant? Probably the best-known civil liberty infringement by the Lincoln administration was the suspension of habeas corpus. Habeas corpus is the right of a jailed individual to request that the authorities show some reasonable evidence in support of the incarceration, or maybe more precisely, the right to ask a judge to issue an order, called a writ of habeas corpus, directing the government to produce that sort of evidence. Habeas corpus is intended to protect against a tyrannical government that locks up its critics, political opponents, or other inconvenient individuals without cause. Basically, it prevents the government from throwing you in jail in the absence of some evidence that you committed a bona fide crime. The term habeas corpus is an abridged version of a Latin phrase that means essentially, you must have the body for examination as in the body of a murder victim, though the right applies in non-murder cases too. Its roots in the Anglo-American tradition go all the way back to the Magna Carta, and it is specifically guaranteed in the body of the U.S. Constitution, even before the Bill of Rights, which states in Article 1, Section 9, The privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended. Now that seems plain enough, but the constitutional provision also adds, quote, Unless, when in cases of rebellion or invasion, the public safety may require it. End quote. Lincoln's order suspending habeas corpus came in early 1861. Its geographical application extended to Maryland and to parts of the Midwest, and it gave a commanding officer in the relevant area authority to suspend habeas corpus upon encountering resistance that made the suspension necessary for the public safety. President Lincoln believed that he had legal authority to suspend habeas corpus because there was a state of rebellion by the Confederate States, but not by Maryland, and because Lincoln was commander-in-chief of the U.S. military. The policy was quickly challenged in the case of John Merriman, a Confederate sympathizer from Maryland who was arrested by the Union Army and accused in a military court of treason against the United States. 
Supreme Court Justice Roger Taney's opinion in the Merriman case rebuked the administration, finding first the constitutional authorization for suspension of habeas corpus applied only to Congress, not to the president or the executive branch generally. And Justice Taney also ruled that a military tribunal lacked jurisdiction over Merriman, a civilian and U.S. citizen with a Sixth Amendment right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury. Taney concluded that if the executive branch and military could, at their own discretion, appropriate the judiciary's authority to rule on the legitimacy of a U.S. citizen's imprisonment, then, quote, the people of the United States are no longer living under a government of laws, end quote. Now, had the issue ended there, the Copperheads wouldn't have had a whole lot to complain about. President Lincoln believed he had good cause and legal authority to take an executive action, but the judiciary disagreed. Happens all the time. But the issue didn't stop there. Instead, the Lincoln administration ignored the court's opinion and expanded the reach of the order that suspended habeas corpus, eventually decreeing in September 1862, just two days after issuing the Emancipation Proclamation, that the right of habeas corpus would be suspended throughout the entire country, again, including states that were not in rebellion. That policy, which Congress did eventually formally support, allowed for anyone deemed a disloyal person to be arrested and held indefinitely with or without trial. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 13,000 civilians were ultimately subjected to military arrest. Writer Justin Ewers, in a 2009 article for U.S. News & World Report, refers to the nationwide habeas corpus suspension by the man who came to be known as the Great Emancipator as, quote, one of the war's starkest ironies, end quote. Lincoln's authorization of martial law in border states, especially Missouri, also raised significant constitutional questions and restricted the rights of American citizens. For example, a Union commander in Missouri forced over 20,000 Missouri residents to leave their homes on suspicion that rebels could have been hiding with some of them. And the Republican share of the presidential vote in Missouri grew from barely over 10% in 1860 to 70% in 1864, as the Missouri Republicans put in charge by the Lincoln administration used the Union Army's presence to prevent Missouri Democrats from voting. By 1864, President Lincoln himself recognized that the martial law policy in Missouri had gotten out of hand and asked the local commander, Grenville Dodge, to start rolling it back. Dodge opted not to do so. A follow-up appeal from Lincoln to Missouri's Republican governor, Thomas Fletcher, was likewise shrugged off. Having tasted the overwhelming power of martial law, neither man was willing to let it go. Fletcher and Dodge insisted that the people of Missouri did in fact support martial law and wouldn't support ending it. But when citizens could be and were arrested for suspected disloyalty on a regular basis, it should be no surprise if they were reluctant to complain about military rule. History professor and writer Mark Neely, quoted in the U.S. News article we referenced earlier, concludes, quote, Lincoln could not at first believe that liberty could be permanently diminished among the liberty-loving American people. Missouri proved him wrong. End quote. 
The Lincoln administration's suspension of habeas corpus, imposition of martial law, and overall expansion of federal power resulted in widespread suppression of freedom of speech and of the press. Newspapers deemed disloyal could be denied the ability to distribute their papers or shut down altogether. Individual orders could be arrested and charged before military tribunals or just held indefinitely. Law professor Robert Pushaw, writing in 2009, concludes simply that, quote, Lincoln banned disloyal speech and press in seeming disregard of the First Amendment, end quote. Another professor, Michael Kurt Curtis, reckons that Lincoln's, quote, military suppression of reactionary anti-war speech during the Civil War may well have paved the way for civil suppression of socialist and other anti-war speech during World War I, end quote. Both Pushaw and Curtis were looking at the Lincoln administration's policies in the context of the Patriot Act and the War on Terror. The climax of the Lincoln administration's wartime restrictions on civil rights, at least in the public eye, came with the arrest of Ohio congressman and noted copperhead Clement Vallandigham, who we discussed earlier. Representative Vallandigham was arrested after a fiery speech in Ohio accusing the Lincoln administration of numerous civil liberties violations and concluding that the true purpose of Mr. Lincoln's war was to make ordinary citizens the slaves of a tyrannical government headed by Lincoln and his fellow Republicans. Needless to say, these kinds of allegations were not well received, but they would seem to be protected by the First Amendment, especially when hurled by a political leader. The problem was that in 1863, General Ambrose Burnside issued Order No. 38, which banned criticism of the war within the state of Ohio. Quote, Hereafter all persons found within our lines who commit acts for the benefit of the enemies of our country will be tried as spies or traitors, and, if convicted, will suffer death. Persons committing such offenses will be at once arrested, with a view to being tried as above stated, or sent beyond our lines into the lines of their friends. End quote. When the order was issued, Vallandigham condemned it as a blatant infringement of Ohioans' constitutional rights. After the Copperhead's Ohio speech, Burnside had Vallandigham arrested and peremptorily tried by a military court, not by the impartial jury the Sixth Amendment guarantees. Predictably, the military tribunal convicted Vallandigham of treason. Congressman Vallandigham attempted an appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, but the court as it often does in politically charged cases, declined to exercise jurisdiction on technical grounds, in this case finding that the military court's ruling was not subject to the Supreme Court's appellate authority. You could speculate that with the administration having already established a willingness to ignore judicial rulings, the Supreme Court decided that it would be better to not weigh in on the dispute than to hold that Vallandigham's rights had indeed been violated, only for the order to be again ignored and the court's legitimacy further discredited. Even so, President Lincoln recognized that the case was bad PR, so he stepped in and commuted the Copperhead leader's sentence, without disapproving of Burnside's order or Vallandigham's arrest or conviction. 
But Lincoln also ordered the Ohio congressmen to be deported into the South. Vallandigham's stay in the Confederacy did not last long. He instead traveled to Canada, where he organized his vigorous and nearly successful campaign for governor of Ohio. Clement Vallandigham's arrest ultimately proved counterproductive for the Lincoln administration. Any value earned by temporarily silencing the congressmen was outweighed by the rhetorical value it provided to other copperheads, who were given a concrete, high-profile example to point to when arguing that Lincoln was an authoritarian blatantly violating the constitutional rights of American citizens. The arrest also made Clement Vallandigham a sympathetic figure among regular Democrat voters and local leaders. The perception was that he not only had the courage to speak out against the pro-war consensus, he also had the integrity to take the heat that the Lincoln administration threw his way. It's like demonstrators today who love the credibility that comes with being led away from a protest in handcuffs, especially when they know the cuffs will come off as soon as the cameras turn away. There are even instances of politicians making up stories about getting arrested to prove their commitment to a politically popular cause. Now, in all fairness to Congressman Vallandigham, he was, in fact, put in jail, though, as we mentioned, President Lincoln commuted the sentence. Nonetheless, the story helped Vallandigham win the Democrat nomination for governor of Ohio. Crazy, right? Today, it's hard to imagine a situation where a politician's popularity with his party increases after he gets arrested. Another high-profile series of trials occurred in 1864, involving the so-called Knights of the Golden Circle. The Knights of the Golden Circle originated in the 1850s as an Ohio-based civic group, but became overtly political and radically anti-war when the Civil War began. The group changed its name to the Sons of Liberty in 1864, and there may have been some loose talk about deposing the state governments of several Midwestern states. Now, it's hard to tell exactly how extensive and active the Knights of the Golden Circle actually were because Republicans latched onto the group and the country's distrust of secret societies as a useful political talking point. Democrats who questioned the war or administration policy were accused of involvement with the shady Knights of the Golden Circle. Pro-administration newspapers ran questionably sourced accounts of the order's shockingly treasonous activities. And pretty much every Copperhead political leader was at some point accused of being a secret leader of the Knights of the Golden Circle. In 1864, several of the group's supposed leaders were arrested, and charged in military courts. The military authorities had discovered, or said they discovered, a plot to raid POW camps in Indiana and release the rebel POWs being held there. The tribunal sentenced the plotters to execution by hanging. However, in this case, the U.S. Supreme Court overruled the death sentences due to serious legal deficiencies in the conduct of the trials. The Copperheads were a vocal minority in the out-of-power party, not a majority of Northerners or even a majority of Democrats. When the tides of war turned in 1864, the anti-war movement's popularity saw a steep decline as former doubters began to reconsider their earlier views. And the Copperhead label started to become toxic for politicians trying to make a case to the voters. 
Republican strategists saw in this turn of events an excellent opportunity to discredit the opposition Democrat Party. High-profile Republicans and their allies at friendly newspapers began a PR campaign, which was largely successful, to create a public perception that the Democrat Party was de facto the Copperhead Party. Republican papers in fall 1864 branded some pro-war Democrat candidates, notably including General George McClellan, as Copperheads, even though the candidates did not actually oppose the war. Now, this is a tactic that has been deployed over and over again in American politics with varying degrees of success. Identify the opposing party faction that is the least palatable to the public and define the entire party as that faction. In the years immediately following the Union victory, Republicans built a narrative that the Civil War was bloodier and more destructive than necessary precisely because the Copperheads provided a big morale boost to the Confederates. Even post-war Democrat politicians whose support for the war never wavered still had to answer accusations of Confederate sympathies and questionable loyalty to the Union. That somewhat cynical but strategically shrewd approach contributed to the Republicans' domination of national politics for a couple decades after the war ended. Now, setting aside the relatively short-term political consequences of Copperheadism, the questions that historians have wrestled with for the last 150 years or so are, first, how much impact did the Copperheads actually have on the war? And second, did Copperheads actually commit treason. The early consensus among historians was that the Copperhead movement was, in the words of George Fort Milton, a fifth column that undermined the war effort and demoralized Northerners. Early 20th century writers saw the Copperheads as not much different than Soviet agents and communist infiltrators embedded in labor organizations and the State Department. The Lincoln administration was therefore justified in cracking down on copperheads, just like later administrations were justified in cracking down on the Reds. Sometimes you just have to suspend a few constitutional liberties to defend the constitutional order. Now, some later historians have argued that the copperhead movement may have been anti-war, but it was not disloyal as a whole. The anti-war position was consistent with traditional Jeffersonian notions of state sovereignty that, before the war began, were hardly outside of the mainstream of American political theory. In this view, the Copperheads were just one of many populist movements throughout American history that have pushed back against the outsized influence in Washington of big business and banks. This school of thought emphasizes that Copperhead opposition came predominantly through legal means or means that were theoretically legal, but for breaches of constitutional rights. First Amendment protected speech, newspaper campaigns, and political organization. The insidious conspiracies were exaggerated, or outright invented, by Republican propagandists. Basically, the Republicans overstated the Copperhead's actual influence as a strategy to discredit the majority of Northern Democrats, who generally supported the war but were critical of the Lincoln administration's execution of it. If they could associate all of Lincoln's political opposition with Copperheadism, they could undermine any dissent, even if it came from pro-war Democrats. Now, it's worth pointing out here that most peace Democrats weren't rooting for a Confederate military victory. They wanted the war to end, 
and many Copperheads openly blamed abolitionists or Republicans or Abraham Lincoln or the North generally for instigating the war. But there's a big difference between saying, stop the war, or the Yankees started it, which are at least theoretically protected by the First Amendment, versus actively helping the other side, which is treason. Now, there were some people in the North who were genuinely rooting for the rebels or who actually did aid the rebels. But that wasn't the Peace Democrat position. Instead, they were calling for a ceasefire and a negotiated settlement. Now, strict unionists would argue that this is a distinction without a difference. If the war ends and the result is anything but a clear union victory, that would almost certainly lead to recognition of an independent confederacy. If the confederacy is an independent nation when the conflict concludes, then the rebels have effectively prevailed. Now, a big part of what makes evaluating the Copperhead movement difficult is the complex nature of the war's genesis. It was fought over two fundamentally separate but hopelessly intertwined questions. If you're against the war on grounds of libertarianism or Jeffersonian federalism because people have a right to choose their own government and the people of the South chose to not be subject to the government in Washington, well, then there's a reasonable argument to be made. On the other hand, if you oppose the war because you think plantation owners have a vested property right to keep their slaves, then you're on much shakier ground. I suspect that for most Peace Democrats, it was much simpler than all that. Remember, it was predominantly a grassroots movement that drew much of its support from Midwestern farmers and poor laborers. For those people, practical considerations probably carried more weight than questions of political philosophy. If you're a small farmer in Ohio, arguments between politicians in Washington, plantation owners in South Carolina, abolitionists in Massachusetts don't directly affect you, at least not until they start saying that you or your sons need to leave the farm and head down south to kill or die to settle the argument. Rich man's war, poor man's fight. Alright, that's going to do it for what was supposed to be a brief look at the Copperhead movement. Next time out, we'll return to intelligence and espionage with a focus on the Confederate side. Until then, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed our episode on the Copperheads. Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. <laughs>